Welcome to Webinecki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webinecki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinecki perspectives on topics of interest. Webinecki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today is the fourth show in part two of our series on unpacking sovereignty. Our guests today are Professors Harold Prince, Professor Darren Ranko, and a special guest, uh, Penobscot tribal member and tribal historian, Maria Gerard. Professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at Kansas State University. Professor Darren Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and a professor of anthropology and chair of Native American studies at the University of Maine. Maria Gerard is an a-tribal historian with a master's degree in history. Uh, her thesis was written on uh, the Land Claims Act, and she continues to research that act. The Land Claims was a suit against the state of Maine by the Passamaquoddy Penobscot uh, Maliseet tribes for around two-thirds of the state of Maine. Previously in our last show, we followed a thread from 1796 treaties to 1820 and to the land claims. Tribal sovereignty was never recognized by the state. This non-recognition was used to control and marginalize the tribes. And as Dr. Renko suggested, this attitude is embedded into the DNA of the state. I'd like to follow the thread of state enrichment at our expense, focusing on the land claims and the areas of the act that follow the pattern of the past, such as practices that kept the state in control and the tribes in poverty, all this uh, lending to the enrichment of the state. Uh, welcome to the show, Maria. I'm interested to know with all your research in this specific area, how do you see the land claims affecting the tribal nations? Uh, did it deliver uh, promised results such as le less control from the state and more freedom for the tribes? Thanks, Donna. First of all, I just want to say thanks for um, inviting me here on the show. It's uh, really an honor to be sitting in conversation with, um, with Darren and with Harold and with yourself. In response to that question, I would have to say that's a resounding no. <laughs> um, the Penobscots and Passamaquoddy tribe thought that they were entering into a new era of existence. They, they looked forward to being equal government to government partners with the state of Maine, and that certainly didn't materialize. Um, however, there were some clues uh, beforehand that that was actually going to be the case. Um, in a public hearing that was held um, in March of 1980, it was uh, said by the um, negotiating chairperson, Andrew Akins, that the Penobscots were interested in building a new relationship with Maine, one of mutual trust and respect. Um, also during that public hearing, the tribal attorney for the tribes, Tom Tureen, also spoke of a new relationship um, he said that in the end, what we wound up with was a blueprint for a governmental relationship between Indians and non-Indians. But the writing was on the wall because at the same public hearing, the Attorney General Richard Cohen's opening remarks revealed a different intent. 
Cohen said, this settlement tends to keep in place that historical relationship with which you are all accustomed and to which your forefathers have been accustomed and which your forefathers created. And so I would have to say that the answer to your question is um, no, that uh, what we ended up with was certainly not what we had uh, intended. The tribes contend that the state violates the spirit of the agreement by attending to legislate and adjudicate the tribes rather than working with them cooperatively. And, um, you know, after so many years of the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy 40 trying to, you know, rid themselves of this oppressive shroud that was the, the state government, it's hard to imagine that the current outcome uh, could ever have been what the original intent of the tribes were as they were negotiating this, um, this settlement. I think it's interesting that Cohen said that it keeps in place the historic relationship for the, in the blueprint. Um, uh, Darren, any response to that? Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I really learned so much with Maria's thesis work, um, which um, did an amazing job, and I encourage everyone to read it. It did an amazing job of bringing together the documentary history with tribal uh, perspectives uh, on that documentary history. So it, it, it really triangulates the, the, um, what happened in the run-up and implementation of the Settlement Act. Um, I think, you know, and I had referenced this, you know, some of the first laws um, in the state of Maine in the 1820s were regulating uh, the lives of Indians in various ways. And pointed that out uh, again and again. And I was just, you know, reading through um, the various state contentions, uh, <laughs> including um, Joseph Brennan and, and others who were, who were involved in, in sort of, not directly in the negotiations, but in kind of positioning the state with respect to the Settlement Act and this, um, reference that Maria made in terms of this ongoing sort of, um, you know, uh, control, uh, being in control of the status and that really this, this notion of um, continuing the status quo is something that so many main politicians uh, of, of particular note were, were really committed to, you know, and they, they said things like, you know, no no nation within a nation and no, no state within a state. And, and, um, you know, Joe Brennan and other, you know, he was Indian fighting Joe. He used, you know, more colorful language and than, than some of the other politicians, or at least, you know, and that's, uh, you know, those crazy left-wing Democrats, uh, right. That were, <laughs> that were using this language, of course, uh, here in the state of Maine. And I think that that, you know, so I think you see that line, you know, continuing to, from the, the Democratic Party through our current um, governor. I think this this position of having being in control and never having, you know, that they, they don't have to um, negotiate and and because they are winning the court cases, they have you know the the, the substantial resources of the state on their side. Um, and the kind of politics that controls that 
um, across, you know, that uh, they can use these sort of vaguely threatening uh, notions that, you know, the tri and create this sense that a tribal win is a state loss. You know, I think that that's sort of the zero sum game of the politics um, that they've, they've set up, you know, since um, very early on and then continuing through this resistance to the Settlement Act. So I think, yeah, I see that in a lot of the, the colorful language uh, of folks. Um, and I also think that what's really interesting is how, um, how dependent upon the kinds of supremacies uh, that are in, uh, that are involved in, say, the doctrine of discovery, which sort of you know the origins of property in and of itself by the state and 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 its claims to property even through treaties, um, require this form of supremacy that only Europeans and then there's their um, descendant nations are the ones that can truly own property and negotiate for it from tribal nations. And, you know, in a way, so much, if, if the, the Non-Intercourse Act um, didn't hold sway in Maine, it actually had the potential to upend a lot of um, um, the previous deeds that were reorganized and re-recognized through um, um, legislative and other kinds of edicts that really recognize the supremacy of the sovereigns in negotiating with, with Indians and not individuals um, signing deeds with Indians. So we see that, and I was quoted recently in the paper, I don't know if you saw that Donna in the Bangor Daily News, um, sort of why why, where did Marsh Island come from? It's a, it's a fun topic to think about, but um, you know, John Marsh, who did sign a deed with the Penobscots uh, in, the, in the 18th century, um, he needed his deed to be sanctioned by the, the, the court uh, and government in Massachusetts. It, his deed with the Indians go, through the revolutionary period would not have held sway. And he used that opportunity to uh, expand significantly the area and his interest in uh, the deed and agreement he signed with Penobscots and, and very much against the will of Penobscots uh, in the 17, early 1780s. So you see this um, notion that it is the sovereigns that have more control um, and that that form of supremacy continues right through the, to the state of Maine uh, into, the, into the current time. Carol? Yeah, very um, quick. Um, uh, first of all, hello, Maria and Darren, uh, um, and of course, Donna. Uh, quickly regarding the Marsh Island that um, I saw that article this morning because Donna forwarded it and I read it. Um, and what was striking, and I said to uh, Donna, the elephant in the room is somehow not mentioned. And that is that uh, the state at that time, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is uh, validating a deed that no one has really seen the text of, that so-called Indian deed, highly dubious whether that actually existed. Um, but the bizarre thing is that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had not yet extinguished Aboriginal title above the head of the tide. When that, um, uh, and so it's an absurd um, power that the Commonwealth arrogates in um, knowing very well that uh, the attempt to have the Penobscot nation sign the treaty in um, uh, a few years earlier that had not been ratified, it had not been ratified until 1796. 
And so here we see Marsh Island basically being granted by the Commonwealth above the head of the tide in territory that the state itself, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts itself, acknowledges had not extinguished Aboriginal title. So you want to really, really put it uh, sharp, you know, maybe the entire University of Maine Orono um, should perhaps on its um, land statement um, acknowledge that um, that was uh, theft by uh, by decree, in this case by the Commonwealth. And so that was my first comment. The first, second comment about what Darren was saying about supremacy, that's true. Uh, but what's also true is that when we talk about the resources of the state of Maine against the tribes, which are overwhelmingly asymmetrical uh, in terms of how that fight is being uh, waged. Um, but a very important thing is that the judges uh, and we've seen that in the various court cases in the state of Maine, but also with the federal judges, the federal judges and the state judges are inherently biased against um, uh, appreciating even the indigenous perspective on things. So what they have is jurisprudence, right? The whole series of case law upon case law upon case law, that becomes the frame of reference, but that body of law, that body of legislation both as passed by the legislature, as well as signed into law by the governor or by the president, uh, but also as upheld or interpreted by the district courts, uh, by the courts of appeal and the Supreme Court. And we see here most recently, of course, an, uh, a, an exposure, if you will, of ideological bias in the Supreme Court um, is just glaring. Everybody knows it. And so the only good thing about the current Supreme Court is that it exposes the cultural biases, uh, the religious biases. If you look at the number of Roman Catholics on the Supreme Court, it's, I think, uh, six of the nine, and perhaps seven of the nine are Roman Catholics. And you wonder beyond the issue of um, that they're, the last three were Trump appointees, but to what degree these people are actually in a position to really speak justice that is truly um, uh, taking all factors into account. So I'm really um, concurring with both uh, Maria and with Darren in terms of uh, the evaluation of the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act. But I would also like to underscore, and it's the last thing I would like to say about this at this moment, is that every settlement, out of court of settlement, by definition is not justice. It's a settlement, right? And that means that um, Laura Nader of uh, University of California, Berkeley has written extensively about uh, the anthropology of law. Uh, it might be interesting to look at that, but uh, she expressly uh, is concerned about the fact that many cases are settled out of court, but thereby do not challenge the status quo fundamentally. Just to follow on that, Harold, I mean, what she, what she, some of her findings are actually that alternative dispute mechanisms, um, non-court, you know, even ones that are supposedly progressive actually lead to decisions that uh, tend to be less favorable to cultural and racial minorities and, and other uh, groups. Uh, so that the idea of the alternative dispute mechanism system being more favorable um, is, is quite the opposite of the truth. Maria, you have a comment? Well, only just to acknowledge that, you know, in, in the land claims, the, the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy were clearly 
up against a long assumed power dynamic and um, we're operating in an unbalanced system. And so at any time we have to go to, to court, it seems that, you know, we're the ones that are going to end up losing. So it's almost like to negotiate is feeling like the, the safest route to go. And, um, you know, I, I, I just wanted to kind of back up a little bit about Darren had said something about the sovereigns, sovereigns having more control. And, you know, when Penobscots began really using that term sovereignty, um, when that came about, you know, was really to, to try to jump into the game and to use the same language that was being used. But for, um, according to our, our language, sovereignty um, was equated to the ownership of people. And so in consulting our language resources, the, the word Nabalmawalagan is meaning um, a, a government uh, ownership of people. And Nabalmawale is he owns the people. So um, I was talking with our language master, uh, Carol Dana about those terms and how sovereignty really is this foreign concept uh, for us. And what we're really speaking about is the inherent uh, right to govern our own affairs. Um, and she said that more consistent with our um, ways of knowing and being would be Nila um, Tarizo, meaning he lives a free life. And so, you know, already, you know, and very early on, we're having this clash of cultures and um, you know, trying to operate in 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 an arena that isn't ours. Carol, yeah, uh, actually, uh, just yesterday I was talking to a, a colleague who um, is working with Ayoreo in the Gran Chaco uh, in of Paraguay in the borderlands of Bolivia and Brazil and Paraguay, and I was there myself uh, several times uh, for short uh, visits and. But I don't speak the language, but he does. And he was sitting in, he, tell, he told me he was sitting in when IRAO chiefs are talking to, by way of an interpreter, are talking to the state representatives of, in this case, the government of Paraguay. And he said, it's amazing how, when you listen to that translation, that what the uh, state officials are hearing or what they're saying, how it is rendered in the uh, Ayurayo language, and it's sometimes completely different. It's sometimes um, not just because there are no equivalent terms, like uh, Maria was just pointing out with the term sovereignty, right? Uh, there is no term like that. Um, uh, just by, by way of small um, note, when I visited uh, my colleague, when he was still a PhD student, uh, he tried to uh, tell his um, the, the village village people in the forest that, his, um, that I was coming to visit. And um, there's no word for mentor. There's no word for professor. So he said, he's like a father to me. That was the only thing that he could come close to uh, to explain who I was. But in their mind, I became his father. And so we kind of made later jokes about it in a way. So I said, hey, you know, here's your father coming. But the fact is, in that relationship to him, um, uh, that was the term chosen. But the key thing is here that when we talk about treaties, one of the striking things that uh, we talked earlier about uh, the bias and supremacy is that 
we have only the English language versions of these treaties. Um, we know they were translated, but they were orally translated. We know that there were people who could write uh, in the Penobscot language. Um, there was even a dictionary made as early as the 1690s by Father Raleigh, but there were others who understood and knew how to write in the uh, Wabanaki languages. And so it's extraordinary that not only do we not see it in the native languages, but then French was a fallback language that many uh, people like Chief Orono, they knew fluent, they knew better French than English. And so we don't see the translations that were provided. And we get these kind of very unilateral one-sided biased records of what was supposedly said without having the benefit of having the countertext in the language itself so we later can compare. So now, uh, like Maria is just saying, had to go to Carol Dana, what is actually the word that was used? And you had to try to retroactively try to figure out what might have been in the minds of the Penobscot leaders at the time when they were forced to sign the treaty. What did they, did they really understand? If you look at the treaties between the European nations, you always have certified translators, but then the text itself has to be certified to be true um, and sworn to be true. None of that exists in Indian country um, with respect to Maine at all. And so we deal with a biased historical record, A. We deal with biased historians, B. C, we deal with biased legislatures and we deal with biased judges. And then we deal with biased political representatives, including the governor and the attorneys general of the state of Maine. So it's an asymmetrical relationships that has been there from the very beginning. And it is pretty much nearly impossible to get equity out of that kind of arrangement. Darren? Yeah, you know, I was with, um... I gave a presentation at the Maine State Bar Association a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's always, and I was doing a little bit of, you know, some of the same history we've been talking about here for the last, um, I don't know how long we've been doing this, like 10 or 12 years. Um, but uh, but so, some of the same history, and I really emphasize the state constitution, but I definitely left off with you know, the debates around current legislation. And again, I'm not a lawyer, so I got fun lawyer questions and and, and I love lawyers. Uh, I did go to law school and uh, my brother is a lawyer. Um, but, you know, I think one of this, one one frame of sort of the the bias is, is you know, driven by like a lot of bias, um, ignorance, you know, I think not a lack of knowing and, and, I don't fault any particular lawyer, but it was kind of like, and I've heard this attitude from lawyers in Maine before, and they have they have no foundation of federal Indian law um, or, um, uh, or or many of them don't have the basic understanding of of um, the the uh, social contract <laughs> or things that we would sort of say are basic issues related to participation in, in a democracy. And when we talk about the retained um, sovereignty of tribal nations, you know, one thing that, you know, they're like, so what do you want? Do you want to be your own, you know, country or do you want to be your own state? You know, like they, they can only put it in their terms. And I'd be like, no, in fact, it's to Maria's <laughs> point around the language, our goal is something else that is not contemplated in a U.S. constitutional framework, and that we are always kind of 
saying, well, it's kind of, you know, the current recognition of tribal sovereignty is, is partial, right? The, the thing that we've been aiming for in this legislation is this odd um, mix of civil and regulatory control and political control over our own lives with very little um, control over non-Native people within the contours of our reservation, be that through civil or, or criminal jurisdictions. You know, we're, we're aiming for this thing of equity with other tribes and what other tribes has is, is kind of complicated and it's, it's the legacy of a beast of, of, of compromise and, and misunderstanding and ignorance that has driven through just with these Supreme Court cases. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I you know, the, you, one question that I had, which is hard for them to understand or, or, or um, wrap their heads around is like, well, will the US constitution apply? And I said, well, the current, in the current system with tribal sovereignty, most of it applies because of this 1968 <laughs> law called the Indian Civil Rights Act. Um, but in fact, because our sovereignty predates the, <laughs> what we're retaining predates the contemplation of the US constitution, it kind of doesn't, right? Like for them to understand that we have our own frameworks or that the possibilities are, are, are our own independent and sovereignty from a different cultural framework is um, core to what, you know, political theorists would say is the social contract that the, the the system of governance has to be, we have to sign off on that, right, as, as the citizens, as subjects to it. Otherwise, it is basically a tyranny. Um, so I think that that those are difficult discussions, because that's very, oh, what, no constitution, you know, what are you going to do? You know, like, they can't, they think like, that's like a ridiculous contemplation that our, our governments, our peoples, our nations, which have been around for thousands of years, wouldn't want to be by default or de facto in, in participating in the US constitutional arrangement. Um, even though what we've been asking for is sort of <laughs> in these legislative goals, very much um, encapsulated by um, US constitutional claims uh, because of these um, court decisions and, and federal laws like the Indian Civil Rights Act. So I think, you know, that opens up, if you're able to say like, no, we want a, a world, a possibility of our own control for our own future, given our cultural frameworks, uh, like uh, Maria mentioned in our language, then it strikes me that people get very threatened by that. And that's layered upon the idea that it is very threatening for us that I think many people think on the, sometimes on the state side, um, that if the tribes have more control, um, that is somehow a harm um, against the state. Like they, they presume that to be the case. Whereas I don't think when native people go into these negotiations around it, we're, we're assuming like our victory is the state's loss. Like we're in some, you know, uh, agonistic, you know, competitive field um, in, in terms of that. In fact, we often cite the cases of where where there's strong recognition of tribal sovereignty in states where the states are actually very much benefiting from the strong recognition of tribal sovereignty. And the state kind of operates in its control system, presuming that 
it would be more tribal control would mean less state control and therefore a harm against the state. And I think getting out of those boxes is really tricky and requires the kind of nuanced understanding of the history that Harold is talking about in terms of the frames of the colonial institutions and then the cultural frameworks that Maria alluded to in terms of our language. Maria? Well, I'm thinking what Darren said about the, um, you know, the ignorance um, and sort of the fear of the unknown that we see happen time and time again. As a matter of fact, I was following a lot of the legislative session, um, you know, towards the end. And um, despite all the efforts to educate the legislature and ed educate the Judiciary Committee, you know, time and time again, we see cropping up, you know, in the 11th hour, all the same type of questions and fears and what if this and what if that, you know, and, and it really makes me feel as though perhaps um, finding agreement isn't going to happen in the legislature, that it's just not set up in that way uh, for us really to spend time together to get to know each other, to understand what each other wants. And I and Darren, it's so true, you know, like, what do you want now? <laughs> you know, that type of um, uh, sense of, of, of fear. And I think a lot about that quote, I think it was Diane Scully, who used to be the chair of Mystic, and she used to say that the, the primary problem between the tribes and the state is that the state feels like if they didn't give it to us, then we don't have it. And the tribes feel like if we didn't give it up, then we retain it in terms of our sovereignty and our rights. And so we're always button heads in that way. And, you know, this, this competitive type of field, you know, is just a um, malingering colonial mindset. And like, how do we, how do we get off the merry-go-round, you know? Um, and so I think about those things a lot. I think about how um, in Penobscot society, in traditional Penobscot society, greed was considered the most egregious offense. And, um, you know, the law of society in our language was Sankawita Westerwagen. And so it was based and grounded in the notion of peace. And so we're really at like different opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, we started there and we're still there and, and it's a struggle. Uh, it's a struggle to find um, some sort of common ground, common understanding against the two. Um, but I also think about um, this great quote by um, a former legislator and representative of the, um, for the Penobscots. With education comes knowledge, and with knowledge comes respect. Right, Donna? <laughs> I think that was one of your quotes um, during the passage of the Maine Indian History Law. So I, you know, that that says it all right there. You know, we need to to find the time to get to know each other in a way where we can respect each other and not be afraid all the time. Harold. Yeah, um, one of the good things sometimes about uh, being an old man uh, that I have now become uh, is that you have a historical perspective that is not from the books but from personal experience and if I look back at uh, 1981 when I first came to Maine uh, right in the wake of uh, the uh, Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act I was 
in Argentina during the military dictatorship before that time. Uh, so I knew nothing about uh, that at all. I'd been in Maine before in 1973 briefly and went to the Passamaquoddy Reservation for a quick visit as a 19 year old. Uh, but there I was back in Maine and started working uh, for the um, Mi'kmaq and Maliseet uh, who were then organized in the Association of Aroostook Indians. And um, if I look at the uh, destruction that was wrought upon the off-reservation uh, Mi'kmaq at the time who were the, the rug was pulled from under them um, uh, badly and they had no idea who did it, what happened. And suddenly he's there, there's the Department of Indian Affairs office in Holton is being closed. Uh, suddenly their scholar, Indian scholarships uh, is, uh, is suddenly in jeopardy. Uh, their uh, hunting and fishing licenses that they had just acquired through the AI, uh, the Association of Rusk Indians also suddenly in, in jeopardy. So everything was suddenly worse, much worse uh, in 1981 than, than it had been in 1979 or 78. So the, um, if I look then at what has happened in Northern Maine, right, Rooster County in particular, that I'm most familiar with, um, if I now look at uh, the Holton Band of Maliseet on its own land, right, if I look at the Rooster Band of Mi'kmaq uh, on their own land, uh, if I look at the culture just the culture itself, it's extraordinary what has come back uh, in terms of the sweat lodges, in terms of uh, many of the cultural rituals and ceremonies that were almost gone uh, uh, in Northern Maine, um, but through a lot of um, help from uh, Mi'kmaq and Maliseet from across the border, from the St. John Valley and from the uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence area and Cape Breton, a lot of that cultural knowledge that had been safeguarded there could be uh, brought back to the families uh, in Northern Maine. So again, when I look at that decade that I worked in Northern Maine for the tribes, uh, for the federal recognition, in particular of the Mi'kmaq, I am actually very heartened, right, about what has, has been achieved. So we sometimes lose sight of the gains that have been made, uh, which not to underestimate the challenges that are still to be overcome. Um, but I think maybe it's a good thing for all of us occasion to look back indeed, not only at what the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act did not achieve, we know that, right? But what has been achieved, and that is a halfway point perhaps um, from which you can build further. And as to the point of Maria, uh, citing Donna, uh, our host uh, today um, of the show, is that respect comes through repeatedly you know, just like you teach anyone, right? It is not just a one-time lesson. You have to repeatedly, I hear a little dog, I have to do it repeatedly for the dog to understand what the rules of the house are in terms of being our housemate. Um, and it's the same thing, I think, with the state legislatures. And of course, every time you've had a state legislator who understands it, that person may be voted out of power in the next elections, and then you have another one in that seat, right? So you have to start again. So I guess that's just part of... Um, the challenge of uh, all of us who are either directly or indirectly involved in education, either like Maria has done across the state with multiple um, presentations at Bates College and many other places that I have heard about um, that you do. And that's part of the educational process. And I think the, uh, the, the show that you're hosting, Donna, that's an example that a thing like that didn't exist in 1980. Yeah. Um... But I think we're all doing that educational piece. Maria does hers, Darren does his, and Harold does his. So working together, 
hey, you know, uh, it's, it's a it's a strong effort, I think. So, uh, Darren. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, going in front of those lawyers, I guess I, I had forgotten about how the <laughs> how contentious that can be. Um, and uh, it's a little different than teaching undergrads, I suppose, that you're grading. They, they, they don't give you much deference. Um, I will say that the Maine State Bar Association, and this is, you know, to, to um, you know, the uh, one, na one, one Nation Under Fraud uh, document, too, that Donna you've put out there. I mean, I think, you know, great advances, great possibilities have, have been um, made um, in, in these last several years. And, you know, part of the modeling of that, and again, I'm so glad Maria is here, um, has to do with the kind of modeling and, uh, you know, I, I'm reluctant to call it anything in particular, activism, um, commitment to community well-being and i just want to say you know that through wabanaki reach um maria's organization um in in its work um leading through the the the, the, the truth and reconciliation commission that work but also kind of and it's no it's not a it's not a um um, an accident that um, so many Wabanaki women doing this work, which is oriented towards collective action, towards um, towards uh, healing and towards education across Native and non-Native communities. Um, you know, recognizing that work, I think, has made some of the recent strides possible. You know, that that work that might have started. You know, I don't know, Maria, more than a decade ago, um, you know, perhaps even longer. Um, I really think, to me anyway, as just someone participating as an educator and researcher, and hopefully what I do supports tribal peoples, um, that I saw new possibilities on the horizon because of work that existed and oriented from within our communities, but very much sought healing and possibilities for reconciliation with non-native people and i'm not saying and there's a whole debate about should we even use that term reconciliation without you know our land back or without any of the things that are, are ongoing harms to us but i do think you know the whatever 1800 um testimonials in support of our sovereignty bill in the in the state legislature um, wouldn't have happened uh, a decade ago, um, and that and and the fact that the 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 bill passed through, and although never put forward to the governor in terms of equalizing our sovereignty um, with the other tribal nations, that you know that has to be something we recognize. And so perhaps Harold, I am an old man in training. Feels <laughs> like I'm an old man at times, but. Uh, you know, just seeing that difference for in the last decade and seeing all the good work put into that by, again, so many Native people, especially Native women, Wabanaki women, and creating these possibilities um, of action. And again, if you, if you watch the judiciary or anything that happens in the legislature, that will surely shrink your hope. But I think if you take a couple of steps back the, the, the broader um, discussions ha have advanced significantly. And, 
And I really want to say that that's that that's in the right direction for sure. I, and I don't know, maybe, you know, politics and we're going to have some Republican wave and LePage or someone even worse or something like that is going to come and be governor. And maybe the moment will be lost in terms of our advancing our um, our issues around tribal sovereignty. But I think I don't think it's going to be I don't think we go back immediately to a, a decade or two ago, we, we go forward and uh, just really taking stock of that. If we don't, I think we're, we're, we're gonna miss the thread of where, where you know, what, what we do next. Maria. Um, I really appreciate the acknowledgement of the strides that have been made over the past many years. Um, I too have noticed a difference just in the short time that I've been involved. And uh, I was actually adding it up like when's the very first time that I did like a educational outreach type of thing. And it was 2006. So I guess I've been at it for, for a decade and a half. Um, but I do see the difference that has been made. At that time, I was at the uh, Penobscot Cultural and Historic Preservation Department. I was a director there. And we began doing these teach the teacher workshops. And um, not only were we, well, for me, not only were we teaching them about our history and our culture and some of our issues and making them aware, but I was also learning from them. So oftentimes I would be asked to do you know, presentation about the land claims, for instance. And so it was an opportunity for me also to hear from those teachers who said, you know what, that was a really scary time for us. And to learn from them where they were coming from, you know, and where that fear came from. And, you know, the media certainly was not our friend during that period and was always, you know, really hyping things up and out of proportion. But, you know, in doing those teach the teacher workshops and building alliances and helping people to understand issues. I mean, there were so many aha moments when they're like, oh, okay, now I get this. And, you know, then all of a sudden it wasn't so scary anymore. And I remember one time saying to my colleague um, about this important work of ally building and saying, you know, we're going to meet these people one day. And um, when the river case started in earnest in 2012, um, you know, I was, I was on tribal council 2012 to 2014 and very much privy to all those conversations. And I remember, you know, I was accustomed to going out and doing presentations and things like that. But I remember I was sort of cautioned about what I would say and in regards to the river case, like, you know, be careful because as a member of tribal council, you're sort of like, um, you know, party to the case and you want to be careful what you say. And, you know, I couldn't wait to be done with tribal council so I could get right out there and sound the alarm. And that's exactly what I did. Um, you know, I was up all hours of night, you know, typing up this essay that would explain like what was going on and what was the history that was related to it. And, um, you know, really working hard to, to build strong alliances and, and so many people have stepped into that work and you know certainly I didn't invent it you know these sorts of um educational efforts were happening long before me but you know I really uh, stepped into it in earnest as and the way I look at it um and, and I don't like to be called an activist I always say that I'm a steward and that Penobscot peoples have been stewards 
of our homelands and of our riverways and all of that is almost like a, a sacred obligation. And so I'm just following that. I'm not an activist. And, you know, the work that I do, I look at it um, as a means of peacemaking. And I do agree 100% that, you know, it's all a step in the right direction, despite what might have happened in the legislature last session or whatever. You know, that everything that everyone says and does that contributes to the, um, it contributes to the record, it contributes to the scholarship. And, um, and I remember, and again, another Carol Dana quote, um, she's taught me a lot over the years. I remember her saying, you know, five miles into the woods, a five mile hike into the woods is the five mile hike out. And I do believe that we're, we are hiking out in the right direction. So I do have a lot of faith in that at this point in time. Carol? Yeah, I'm very happy to hear this because it's important without hope, uh, it becomes very difficult to continue to hike in any direction, right? Uh, and so um, uh, that hope keeps, uh, keeps people on their feet uh, and makes them willing to uh, get up in the morning and um, get to work. And if you become in despair, the French word, of course, means hopelessness, right? That's what despair literally means. Uh, and that means you become incapacitated and uh, you sit down and you actually become an agent of your own downfall. And so um, uh, I, I'm really heartened by that um, to, to take stock of um, what has been achieved uh, and not to be discouraged by the failures that are happening along the way. As to the point of uh, Darren uh, was referring to uh, LePage, um, one of the striking things is uh, that um, much progress, ironically, has happened in Indian country under Republican government um, with Republican uh, support. Uh, I think here about the earliest support that we had for the Mi'kmaq uh, came from a Republican senator from Holton. Um, uh, and um, one of the earliest things I learned that uh, working in Indian country, um, I basically ignored the Republican-Democrat divide uh, because I realized when I look at history, for example, and you look at some major breakthroughs in federal law uh, with respect to Indian rights um, uh, that have happened under Republican administrations. Uh, I'm a foreigner, uh, just for the record. Um, I've never become an American citizen. I'm still a, a Netherlands uh, citizen. And... Um, uh, so I'm a green card holder and a foreigner in that regard. Uh, and I've, as Donna, when she introduced me, says a native from the Netherlands, but I'm also a citizen of the Netherlands and not of this country. Um, but um, so I I'm, I'm, can't vote in this country. Um, and if I did vote, I would not automatically go for a the Democratic ticket or the Republican ticket. It would very much depend on uh, which politician is, um, is a champion of what. And um, uh, I think that um, when you look at the state of Maine, uh, the, current, the current governor, who is the former attorney general, uh, one would have expected, perhaps, uh, if you didn't know her track record, uh, that um, she might have been, as a Democrat, more favorable to the tribes, but she hasn't been, right? And she, she's holding out against the um, members of her own party in, the, uh, in Washington, who are representing the state of Maine there. So it's a the the, the Democrat Republican divide. I don't know what uh, the Donna maybe you as a uh, tribal rep and uh, in the legislature you've probably seen that repeatedly play out. It's not easy to predict um, 
how people vote, right? Well, Harold, what I see play out in the legislature, it really, as far as tribal stuff goes, uh, the R's and the D's usually um, end up on the same page, which is really not on our page. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I'm not, I don't favor uh, one party over another uh, unless their positions are extreme. I will say no, no more than that. Um, but, and the other thing is that you're right, Harold. I mean, the, uh, the R's have helped us in the past, um, sometimes unexpectedly. So really, again, it's, 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 uh, it's, what, it's, it's how they help us. That's the way I look at it. I don't look at it uh, from a party perspective. Clarification there. <laughs> I agree. Thanks, Darren. I, I will only say one thing that um, there is a, um, a particular form of conservatism that is also in the state of Maine, not universally so, uh, on the Republican side that is um, quite critical or um, suspicious of moves towards uh, justice that are connected to racialized experiences from our history. Um, but I hold out hope that um, I've always thought that Republicans and the brand of Republicans that are supportive of, you know, more control by communities over their livelihoods and well-being um, have sided with tribes in the past. Um, and, um, you know, that our, our ability, and, and I think this is one of the, uh, your fundamental questions, Donna, too, which is, in what way have the, the had, has the Settlement Act uh, kept tribal um, poverty in place? Uh, in what ways has it alleviated um, intense poverty that we've talked about poverty in other um, ill situations, um, traumatic situations caused by colonization and continued state control? Uh, I do see at times, you know, um, um, for us, the, the the ability to uh, literally feed ourselves, and, and I would include in that um, issues around food sovereignty and environment. Um, so that's why that's so critical because of our subsistence livelihoods um, are so important to us culturally and otherwise. Um, but I think, you know, to be, you know, but by every factor and by um, uh, every means, the, 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 um, the well-being of our communities is is much better now than it was before the Settlement Acts. Um, and I, I don't think it's because of the Settlement Act per se, I think federal recognition and some things in the Settlement Act and other infrastructures that were um, uh, um, able to be built within our tribes and our tribal communities because of the uh, of recognition and the Settlement Act. I think these have 
yeah, advanced our well-being in significant ways. And I think it would be silly to not recognize that. Um, but also there are, again, huge disparities, right? That the TRC and, and Wabanaki Reach have, have, have exposed in dramatic ways and they affect our children, they affect our livelihoods and our ability to support ourselves as, as a tribe, as a community. Um, and so, you know, we need to continue that work um, but also recognize where we've been and where we can go. So I think, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't think it's, you know, if you look at history, Democrat, Republican, that's not gonna really, that doesn't help us. Uh, and I think anyone that thinks that there's a doctrinaire piece of it, I will say that those testimonials um, um, in support of 1626 came um, at the urging of a lot more democratic politicians in the state of Maine than, than, than Republican. And the votes in favor of that bill were far more, you know, Democrat uh, than Republican. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to invest <laughs> anything beyond, you know, that this moment and the people we work with, um, it's beyond party. I think it's the people we've actually worked with, you know, and I think of, you know, those politicians, um, whether they have a D or an R, um, these are our partners in this, and they see our, their well-being and our well-being tied together. And I think that's the critical part of this. So I think we're, well, we probably have like three or four more minutes. Do you agree, Darren, on that timing? Um, so yeah. as far as, I, I just didn't want to get into the weeds in, in, in politics. <laughs> I was trying to stay away from that um, and, and just, uh, Talk, you know, but I guess it's kind of hard not to because we are uh, under under the control of whoever controls state government. So we sort of have to bring politics into our discussion uh, in a gen in a general way. Not yes, Maria. <laughs> um, I just want I wanted to respond. Um, I generally have a hard time with labels and um, even within Democrat and even within Republican there's all this this whole you know array of, of labels and you know it it feels to me as though that those those labels are meant to divide us and in the end we're all just humans right we're all just human beings and so um, as a scholar of history you know I'm very much interested in history that empowers us history that you know, honors the struggle of the ancestors. We're like the continuation of that uh, for our descendants. And you know, when you're you're taught, when you're taught, when you're told, when you're led to feel that the world is a closed door, then that's what you expect, and that's what you get. And so we need to rewrite these stories that we tell ourselves. We need stories that empower us and make us feel good. And that's why I really love acknowledging. Um, the long road and, and where we are in that and that we're uh, on the way out of the woods. <laughs> okay, so everybody, I'll give you a, maybe a half a minute or so to close. We'll start with uh, Darren. Can you be that short? <laughs> of course, Donna. I can't believe you would even ask me that question. The, uh, you, you know, I think, I think we're taking stock of, of this moment in time and, and sort of the impact of the Settlement Act and Clearly there's work, uh, more work to be done. And I, I, you know, I'll return to what Maria said. I think this notion 
and, and this is borne out in my historical and cultural research that our notion of, you know, I won't even call it sovereignty, our, our notion of our sense of freedom, and this is consistent in so many documents, is you know, our ability to control in partnership with native and non-native people, um, you know, our, our, our well-being and livelihood into the future and thinking about the seventh generation. And I think that, that, that is what people are drawn to in our work together. And I, I do have great hope for that. All right, Harold, you're gonna have to take it. Well, I'm not speaking for Maria, so that's uh, gonna be hard, but she did um, refer to the river case. And, um, and that's an important case that uh, I hope is not ended simply because the Supreme Court refused to uh, take it up. Um, it's a very important case on many, many levels. And um, perhaps Donna, uh, it's something to, uh, to explore in uh, one of your future shows. Yeah, I agree. So uh, we'll end it right there, Harold. Um, so thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. I want to thank professors, Her professors Harold Prince, Darren Ranko, and special guest, Penobscot tribal member uh, and land claims researcher, Maria Girard, for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from the CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.